Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, May 27th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers, Kwai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. We're recording on a new setup today. We're recording on Zencaster, which I've never used, so hopefully this works. Usually we record uh, with uh, something called Call Recorder on Skype, and for some reason that wasn't working today, so we're we're trying this new setup. Let me know if this sounds better than usual, uh, if you can. Uh, send me an email, peter at sashon.com. It'd be great to hear from you. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump into this. Let's jump into the news. Last week we learned that there's a Labyrinth sequel in the works. HD, what do we know? Doctor Strange director Scott Derrickson is here to remind you of the babe. <laughs> the babe no with the power? Answer back. All right, it's fine. <laughs> um, um, yes, Scott Derrickson has been tapped by TriStar Pictures to direct the Labyrinth sequel, which actually has been in the works in some form or another since at least 2014. Um, back in 2017, Don't Breathe director Fede Alvarez was set to helm the sequel, but then that kind of fell apart or we didn't hear anything about it but now scott derrickson is on board to direct this um new direction um and he will be taking the helm with maggie levin who is written for hulu's into the dark my valentine um writing the script so uh it's there are no details yet on whether what the, the sequel will um, contain, like whether it will be a continuation of the first Labyrinth movie uh, with Jennifer Connelly reprising her role, um, or and if a new actor will have to take on the role uh, of David Bowie's Labyrinth uh, Goblin King um, because of his passing. And it would also be a very uh, big burden for any actor to step into those uh, very skin tight pants. So um, we have no idea yet what this will be, what this um, will entail. But we do know that the Jim Henson Company is involved, and that they are working with TriStar Pictures to develop this Labyrinth sequel. 
Yeah, I wonder, like, how do you handle that? Because nobody can replace David Bowie. Like, I feel like the best thing to do is have the Goblin King died in this fantasy world. And, you know, the world of Labyrinth, like, what does that What does that mean for the world of Labyrinth? And maybe Jennifer Conway with uh, the baby that's now grown up, I guess, is probably the new character. I don't know. The only thing I know is that I love Labyrinth, and I hope that they do it with practical puppets i know henson's involved but henson all and they did practical puppets on that dark crystal netflix series but i know that they also have spent a lot of money in r&d in digital puppetry which is actually like a very interesting thing but it's not practical puppets so i i really hope that they are gonna use practical puppets for this uh i guess what i'm a little bit skeptical is of is like is scott derrickson the right person for this i do think he's a better choice than fede alvarez um i do like what he's done with the doctor strange um the doctor strange movie he um parted ways with marvel and then and is not directing the second one but i feel like even though his credits are mostly horror um doctor strange has such a surreal um visually stunning uh fantastical element to it that could be brought into the labyrinth movie like could translate well with a labyrinth sequel but um i don't yeah i don't know i haven't seen a lot of his other films actually so i can't exactly say um but i do think i do want to speak about the practical puppetry i i will say that the jim henson company also was working with netflix to uh develop the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance series, and they use a combination of practical puppetry as well as digital effects, but I remember they were very adamant on keeping the spirit of the original and using practical puppets to maintain that um, the original vision of Jim Henson, so I feel like they will use practical puppets to an extent, um, if just because like the puppets and Jim Henson's whole just like really bizarre fantasy vision was just what was so uh, synonymous with Labyrinth. So I feel like they'll at least use pu- practical puppets in some way. There may be some, um, you know, some s- new technology to make it smoother, but um, I, I think that they'll at least maintain that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of this. I, I have to assume, you know, knowing the films that you like, you know, you're a big, huge Miyazaki fan. You love kind of fairy tale ish stuff. Were you a big fan of the original Labyrinth? I was. It was actually, I had, uh, I remember I got a VHS of Labyrinth from my aunt, who was a huge fan of this, but she gave it to me when I was really young. I think I was like five or something, and I started watching it, and I was very scared. So I didn't pick it up again until I was, I think, (laughs) 10 or 12, and I fell in love with it. It was also, you know, very much at that perfect time, because David Bowie in this film is this sexually charged androgynous impish being and he's you know the sexual awakening for many of people so it was just kind of a perfect little time for me to to watch that movie and i i adore the i adore labyrinth and i adore just kind of the yeah bizarre like the fantasy elements of it and how um how strange and funny and uh and uh yeah fairy tale it is yeah you, you know now we're, while you're talking i i haven't seen labyrinth in a few years and i was thinking like it does have some mind bendiness to it like there's that whole part inside the castle where like gravity is working and it's almost like in what is that escher painting where like people are like walking up walls and stuff like that and yeah, uh some optical me- illusions 
Yeah, so I, could, I guess I could see why they would see something in Derrickson for this project with that, with the with what he did with Doctor Strange. So we'll have to see. I'm, I'm very curious about this. Uh, I do. I am glad that it's a sequel and not a remake because I think that would be a bad thing to do. Um, but yeah, okay. Let, let's move on. Let's talk about Walt Disney World and their plans to begin a phased reopening. Brad, what do we know? Yeah, so uh, Walt Disney World is opening soon now that the restrictions uh, on certain businesses being open and public gatherings are starting to lift a little bit. Uh, even though the coronavirus pandemic isn't over, uh, things are starting to get back to uh, business as usual, I guess you can call it. Uh, but it won't be open as uh, people remember Disney World because obviously they won't be operating at full capacity. Uh, but the Orange County Economic Recovery Task Force did approve their intention to reopen starting with Disney World's Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom on July 11th, followed by Epcot and Hollywood Studios on July 15th. And the way that they'll open will be very similar to how Shanghai Disneyland opened, which we talked about previously. There'll be a temperature checkpoint in order for people to get in. Uh, attendees will have to wear a mask at all times unless they're eating. There'll be social distancing policies in place for lines for admission to the park, attractions, and food. They'll have a contactless payment system in place to avoid handling cash. There'll be extra hand sanitizing stations. And, of course, cast members will be enforcing all the social distancing measures as well. Uh, and some of the big things that will be missing, uh, even when the park opens, is there won't be any parades, won't be any fireworks shows in order to avoid mass gatherings of people in, in the same spot. Uh, and there won't be any up-close-and-personal character uh, meet-and-greets that there usually are with the various characters and uh, cast members. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, I guess good for people who are eager to get back to theme parks. Um, I, I personally think that maybe it's too soon, but with the capacity low, maybe it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I've watched some vlogs from Shanghai, and it's very interesting because the capacity of the park has been capped to i think like 30 percent or 25 percent or something like that and it's very wide open and there's not many people in, or it looks like there's not many people in there at least in comparison to you know what it normally is and it seems like shanghai i mean i guess maybe the people over there are easier to control than americans i don't know i'm, I'm not gonna make <laughs> wide uh you know statements about like you know americans versus chinese or anything like that but i i i am curious if you know there will be problems when they open stateside i i do know that we've seen you know some people <laughs> you know there's that video that went viral of that guy in a costco that refused to wear his mask but i at one point i i seem to think that like if you're spending 200 dollars to go to a disney theme park and you're going to invest that money and a cast member comes over to you and says, if you don't put your mask on, you're going to be kicked out. Like that money investment is pretty big. So I feel like everybody's going to probably be on their best behavior and be following the rules. But maybe that's the optimist in me. But I applaud your optimism, Peter, about the American uh, behavior. Well, I'm not, I'm not optimistic about American behavior. I'm optimist that, you know, with that much money invested, that they won't, like, throw a fit and try to, like... Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, if there's one how thing much does it cost? If there's one thing that America that? has proven, it's that people that have money to spare on things like this usually are pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. It's going to be interesting. And Disneyland, I think, is putting in their uh, plans today with Orange County in California. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes because I live close to Disneyland. I run a vlog channel that's about theme parks. And I will tell you right here that uh, if they open and allow, uh, you know, pass holders to go there, I will be there on opening day to to cover it safely. And by that, I mean I'll be social distancing i'll be wearing a mask i'll be washing my hands i will not be riding any roller coaster rides where droplets from people's mouths in front of me would would potentially get in my face or eyes um you know i i think there's a smart way to handle this and uh i don't know if you if you look at japan i think for instance like they have been able to not only flatten the curve, but like really like kill like this thing. And they've done it without completely shutting down. Like they've had their subways open. They've had like, and it's, it's really a matter of, you know, them enforcing the social distancing and masks and all that, that I think that's mattered. So I think if people follow the rules, which I think is like, you know, I know you guys are laughing at me if people follow the rules, but I don't know. Guys, don't screw it up for everybody. Just follow the rules, and we'll we'll all be okay. Maybe, possibly, we'll see. Uh, but anyways, okay, let's talk about some Spielberg sequels. Let's start off with Indiana Jones Five. We know the new director is James Mangold, and he has recently teased what might be in store for this fifth film. Chris, what do we know? Uh, yeah, so he has a, a very lengthy quote about this i would encourage everyone to read it on slashfilm.com but it boils down to he says quote i think the most important thing is in an age when franchises have become a commodity that serving the same thing again isn't ideal so uh, it's a it's a long way of saying he's going to try and do something completely new and that's you know that's that's great in theory but he you know he makes it sound like that's what audiences want and while i commend that i don't <laughs> i don't know if it's true because uh, in in the story when i wrote this up the, the best example i used is is the, the latest star wars trilogy you know the force awakens i love that movie but i feel like everyone can agree that's very much a rehash of a new hope whereas when the last jedi came out and it, it dared to do something different it inspired so much weird backlash so while i commend james mangold's comment that audiences want something new i t i don't know if that's a hundred percent true but you know i can i can be hopeful and uh at the same time i still remain really unsure about this whole thing just because you know i like james mangold i like most of his movies but it's so hard to picture an indiana jones movie without steven spielberg behind the camera it just seems like it just seems wrong to me but i don't know I, I will say this, Chris. I I I kind of disagree that people don't want something new. I think people just don't want something new in the context of like the eighth installment of a nine chapter, you know, saga or something like that. Like, and, and I think that would apply here too. So if you're going to have Harrison Ford returning as Indiana Jones and it's not a reboot, I'm guessing people won't want something new. But uh, what do you think he means by something new? Like, what could this possibly be? I don't know because Indiana Jones has such a, a, a tried and true uh, formula. You know, Indiana Jones, he goes to a foreign country looking for some sort of archaeological uh, item. Uh, he gets mixed up in, in danger. I mean, the only thing I can think of is 
I love Indiana Jones and uh, the last crusade, but there are arguments against it being a rehash of Raiders because, you know, it's, it's him dealing with a religious artifact. Again, it's him dealing with Nazis again, but that worked so well. So I don't know what you want to complain about. So I, I honestly don't know. I mean, you could also say that kingdom of the crystal skull is very different and people do not like that movie. So again, I don't, I can't think of like how different he wants to make this other than the era is going to be different because it's going to have to be, I guess it's going to be in the sixties, I guess, which might be interesting. Indiana Jones in the sixties. When, when did the last one take place? Because that was, Shia LaBeouf's character was a greaser. So that was like fifties. Yeah, that was the fifties. So this would have to be the sixties or even like the seventies, which would be very weird. Indiana Jones in the seventies. I don't know. Huh. Yeah. You don't have a Hitler to fall back in there. Maybe like the Vietnam war. I don't know. I don't know what you would play with there. But uh, talking about another franchise that I think has taken a direction of doing something new and fans and critics both, I think, are not really happy with where it's heading. That is the Jurassic World uh, film series. This third film, Jurassic World Domination, we thought was going to be the end of this trilogy, but it apparently isn't. It's going to start a whole new franchise. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, so it's actually called Jurassic World Dominion. Oh, did I say Domination? Dominion. Yeah, but you're Sorry. close. You're, you're close. That's the Michael Bay version of Jurassic World. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, yeah, Jurassic World Dominion is coming. Uh, it's slated for release next year uh, if, if it stays on track uh, for June 11th, 2021. Um, and when Colin Trevorrow and Derek Connolly started Jurassic World, they already had this trilogy arc planned for three movies. Uh, before they even were asked to do a second or third movie. So they've had this story in works for a while, and since this was considered to be the end of this new trilogy, and they're bringing back original cast members like Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum, it was thought that maybe this would be the end of the uh, not just the Jurassic World franchise, but the Jurassic Park franchise as a whole. But producer Frank Marshall says uh, that that's not the case. In fact, he calls Jurassic World Dominion quote, the start of a new era. Uh, And so he says uh, in a brief interview with uh, Collider, where they talked about the Jurassic World franchise for a bit, uh, he was asked whether this was the end. And the uh, outlet said that he gave an effusive denial of such a thought and said, the dinosaurs are now on the mainland among us, and they will be for quite some time, I hope. So uh, whatever happens in Jurassic World Dominion apparently doesn't wrap things up to a point where this would be the end of the, the series. And, uh, you know, it would stand to reason that even though Trevorrow and Connolly saw this as the end of their trilogy, uh, they also brought on Emily Carmichael to write on the script. So maybe she brought something new to help open up uh, the movie a little bit to allow for future. Maybe it's just kind of an open door policy kind of thing where uh, this completes a story arc, but also allows for new stories in the future. Uh, So, yeah, it's, it's hard to tell at this point. You know, we've still got a little while before we see what happens in Dominion. And we don't really have much of an idea of what's going on, except for the fact that there's now dinosaurs out in the wild. So whatever happens in that movie will depend on how we see uh, the future of the Jurassic franchise. I'll tell you how I read this. I think that this third film is, like you say, it's going to be dealing with the dinosaurs out in the wild and us as humans trying to exploit them in ways. And I think by the end of this, now hearing what Frank Marshall had to say, I think by the end of this movie... We're going to get to like a Planet of the Apes scenario where the next movie in the series is going to be like, you know, 
humanity has lost the world to dinosaurs and we are trying to survive. We are now living in their Jurassic world. Dinosaurs are starting to use tools and weapons and <laughs> we have to fight them in a big war. I don't know about that. That would actually be amazing. If it was like Mad Max, but with dinosaurs, that would be like the coolest movie ever made. I'm I'm all in on this idea. Let's <laughs> let's make it happen. Did, did any of you ever see the Steven Spielberg produced TV show Terra Nova? Yes. No. Oh, I think I, I saw I an did. episode of that. That's the one where like it, all the electricity goes out throughout the world, right? No, no, that's that's revo- that's revolution. Um, there's just so many. Okay, sorry. That's I didn't see that one then. Yeah, that was J.J. Abrams. Uh, this one involved like there was a upcoming extinction event on Earth coming up, and we have discovered time travel. So we sent people back to I think the Jurassic times or sometime of dinosaurs to a place that was safe of dinosaurs to basically create a new humanity you know millions of years before humanity came about on earth so basically to for humanity to survive they had to make a new home in the past which was a genius concept the the execution's really bad but uh i'm wondering if we're headed in that direction in some way i don't know uh, okay, let's talk about the Snyder Cut. We we talked about this last week, how HBO Max has greenlit the Snyder Cut. Uh, they're going to release Jack, uh, Zack Snyder's version of Justice League. And this week, we learned a little bit more, including the fact that the Snyder Cut actually doesn't exist. Chris, tell us about it. So, yes, uh, HBO Max head and Warner Brothers, uh, Warner Media chairman Bob Greenblatt gave an interview about uh, the Snyder cut and first things first, he did admit that it does not exist. So we can take that off the table, but it's being assembled right now. And while it's been reported that it would cost 30 million to, to put this all together, he's hinting at something much, much more expensive. He, uh, he said, quote, I'll just say, I wish it was 30 million. It's an, uh, it's an enormous <laughs> undertaking and very complex. So uh, this obviously will lead to speculation is is Zack Snyder going to actually do full-fledged reshoots with the cast. I I maintain that that's not going to happen, but I guess we'll see. But uh, it's going to cost a lot of money for Zack Snyder to put whatever this is going to be together. Um, Obviously, he has some sort of rough cut he's working with, but he's going to need to add uh, special effects and color correcting and, and all this stuff. And it wasn't reported that while the actors might not shoot new scenes, they would probably come in to do maybe voiceover work, ADR work. So I'm sure they're going to have to pay them to do that. Obviously, you know, the actors don't work for free. So it's going to it's going to pile up eventually and and be a very costly undertaking. Yeah, he's making it sound like a considerably more than 30 million. So what is that? 40 million, 50 million, 60 million? Like, I I guess you're right. Visual effects cost a lot of money. It's hard to imagine that Ben Affleck would return and put on the Batman costume again to finish this version of Justice League. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll see. Uh, the interesting thing here is it seems like the version he's going to be creating is going to be different than the version he would have released if he had the chance to release the Snyder Cut originally. And I th- that kind of gels with what I know of this film and how it kind of was kind of it ended in a way that set up a second film and also a sequel to Batman or Superman. 
so I don't know. I, I'm guessing they're going to have to rework the ending a little bit in some way, but we'll see. It'll be interesting. I know that they, you know, we've already heard previously, Brad, I think you were right about this, right? That like that it, they weren't going to do reshoots. Yeah, so uh, at least that's the word on the street shortly after the uh, Justice League Snyder Cut was announced because um, Umberto Gonzalez, who's the founder of Heroic Hollywood, and he actually got an early uh, scoop on this before it started becoming official and word started uh, leaking that this was officially happening, that uh, Snyder wants to do reshoots uh, and additional photography, but HBO Max has said no, that they'll give him money for post-production, visual effects, scoring, and like Chris said, even doing ADR with the cast, but they apparently won't be doing any reshoots uh, for this movie. I I suppose there's a chance that maybe Zack Snyder could have convinced them or they're still working on that part of uh, the deal, but I I wouldn't anticipate them shooting uh, any new scenes with the cast. Yeah. Now that this has happened, this opens the door for possible other director's cuts. You know, filmmakers have been thrown off their films to come back and release a director's cut of their film. I mean, I guess that's happened in the past with like Richard Donner and Superman, too. But it's not something that like happens too often. And I know a couple filmmakers online have kind of, you know, put their tip their hat and said that they are interested. H.D., tell us about it. Yes, David Ayer, who directed the 2016's Suicide Squad, uh, is the first person to tip his hat, so to speak. He uh, put out a tweet uh, in response to um, people asking whether there exists a Ayer cut of uh, Suicide Squad and said, um, my cut would be easy, easy to complete. It would be incredibly cathartic to me. Um, it's exhausting getting your ass kicked for a film that got the Edward Scissorhands treatment. So he is willing and uh, eager to do a Ayer cut of The Suicide Squad. And already in the responses to his tweet, uh, people who were formerly um, uh, uh, supporting the Snyder cut are uh, now making trend the air cut hashtag so um he's and as we have like heard from over the years uh the suicide squad was subject to many reshoots um that cost as much as 22 million and uh had a dramatic change in tone i um it was told we heard that air's original vision was a little bit more on the serious side and uh the film that we got was trying to go for a more comedic direction, uh, didn't necessarily work, but David Ayer is um, excited to hopefully get his uh, version out there maybe someday now that um, this <laughs> precedent has been set. So, um, well, hopefully for him, maybe not for the rest of us. <laughs> but yeah. uh, he he's the one who's, um, who's excited to uh, get on that train, whereas Josh Trank, who directed the 2015 Fantastic Four, is a little bit less uh, eager about that. He uh, responded to a question from a fan asking if, um, or rather saying that we're coming for F4, and he said... No need. Uh, he has put to bed the um, the idea of doing a redo or doing a trink cut of Fantastic Four. I think he's he's um, set himself apart enough from this uh, this film, which uh, went through lengthy behind the scenes troubles with 20th Century Fox, and so we probably won't be seeing a trink cut of, of Fantastic Four, but we will be seeing maybe a Suicide Squad cut, whether we want to or not. I wonder why Trank would just be like, there's no need. Like, it, maybe he realizes that even the best case scenario of a cut of Fantastic Four is still a bad case scenario, I'm guessing. Uh, well, another I, filmmaker. What were you going to say? 
Oh, I was, I was going to say, I remember that he was excited for his original vision, but I think that he's just gone through so much with this that he doesn't want to um, rehash it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another director that put their hat into the mix is Paul Feig with Ghostbusters Answer the Call. Chris, what do we know? Uh, yes, this this originated uh, based on a tweet, and I honestly don't even understand the tweet. But someone said, can we get the Paul Feig cut of Justice League instead? Which, I why? Why would you even? That makes absolutely zero sense. But anyway, <laughs> Paul Feig responded to that and said, there's a three and a half hour cut of Ghostbusters Answer the Call I'd be happy to share. And that's of course, is his Ghostbusters uh, reboot. And uh, that doesn't mean it's actually going to happen, but... <laughs> it just proves that there was a longer cut. He actually said there was an, an editor's cut that was over four hours long. And then he trimmed it down to three and a half hours. And then it got trimmed down even further to the under two hours, uh, theatrical cut. Um, it's all, it's worth noting that the, the Blu-ray release of, of Ghostbusters has an extended cut. That's a little bit over two hours that adds in some more, uh, backstory on, on the characters, but this is obviously just Paul Feig, just, just having, having some fun on twitter.com. I don't think we're actually yeah. going to get a, a three plus hour Ghostbusters cut. Yeah. I don't think so either. You know, I have to go to Brad, who's our resident Ghostbusters super fan. Brad, would you even be interested in a three hour long cut of Ghostbusters answer to the call? I mean, I'd be interested in, in the in like just out of curiosity, say just to see how much footage there is and how, all the stuff that they shot uh, for. I don't think that it would be good to see a three hour cut of that. Um, you know, I'm somebody who doesn't hate Ghostbusters answer the call, but thinks it has some problems uh, and likes certain aspects of it. But I mean, a, a three hour cut of any comedy is, uh, you know, trouble. I mean, some Judd Apatow movies overstay their welcome a little bit at two hours or a little more. And it's just hard to make a comedy you know, sustain itself for that long. Yeah, agreed. I think that's well said. Okay, so that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find all of our work at SlashFilm.com, including the stories that are linked in the show notes. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you on Friday.